Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A 22-year-old man in Montreal was fatally stabbed last Tuesday after an altercation with three teens. The boys, just 16 and 17 years old, have been arrested. Amazingly, the victim's mother has already said she forgives the boys and that her son was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. She hopes they get the help they're going to need for what they're going through. Forgiveness is the only way we're going to get through this, she said. A truck driver in the UK who was left with life-changing injuries when he was struck by a driver heading in his direction on the wrong side of the road said he forgives the man. Both of them had to be cut out of their vehicles. The wrong way driver was sentenced to 20 months in jail and banned uh, from the road for two years. The victim is still recovering and sometimes suffers pain so great he wished he would have died in that accident. But he still, he forgives. Could you do that? I hope you're never faced with a kind of decision, you know, like that, because they always seem to follow some personal tragedy, don't they? Well, what about this? What if your church told you or your loved ones that your salvation might be in jeopardy through no fault of your own? You know, hundreds, maybe thousands of Roman Catholics in Arizona are dealing with that right now. A priest in the Phoenix Diocese was removed from his congregation and put to work tracking down all the people he's baptized over the past 20-some years because of one misused pronoun he chose in the baptismal formula. Trying to portray a sense of community, when he poured water on the baptismal candidate, he would say, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The correct form is, I baptize you. Now, we know that it's always God who does the actual work of baptizing, right? Anything we try to do on our own, apart from uh, standing uh, in his place or acting as his agent, can really only fall short of anything God can do, even without our help. He works the miracle. But he has to have some way of getting the water from the font to the recipient. So uh, the priest, or in our case, the pastor, stands uh, in to literally lend a hand. The Catholic Church has addressed this issue in the past, and again, most lately, by Pope Francis in 2020. He reaffirmed that apart from the correct approved church-approved baptismal formula, using we in the place of I or any other unapproved words makes the sacrament invalid. So now they have to deal with that. You know, if you turned out to be one of the many Catholics he baptized incorrectly, or perhaps it's a, you're worried now uh, about your salvation, faced with being recatechized or maybe even rebaptized, uh, or maybe the salvation of loved ones who were baptized incorrectly, uh, according to the, their church doctrine, um, who have since passed away. You know, could you ever forgive the priest who messed that up? He has apologized. Now, I've never heard of anything like this in our church body. I don't imagine we ever will, but. You know, we believe that while God has promised to work through his means of grace to bestow forgiveness and new life, word and sacrament, he hasn't bound himself to those. It's not the only way to be forgiven, the only way to achieve salvation. And Christ gave us the formula that really matters by his authority, the highest authority there is. He said to do it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The rest is really a matter of correct understanding of the doctrine behind the sacrament and ancient church tradition. Now, using we is wrong. We here welcome the child into God's family after the baptism, don't we? Uh, but God baptizes. 
Probably more than I needed to say about it, but maybe you saw it in the news and, and were wondering. The point, I guess, this morning is if you were a Catholic and your church was questioning your status as a saved believer because of nothing you had done, did you ever forgive that priest? Or maybe you could forgive him, but you'd still hold a grudge. But then if you hold a grudge against someone who clearly deserves it, have you really forgiven them? You know, is Jesus commanding us to do some things this morning that we're really unable to do without some divine help? Well, certainly he's asking or commanding his followers uh, to do some, some things that are tough, things that are going to be a real stretch for us, believe it or not. You know, bless those who curse you, he says. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. Love your enemies. Don't judge others. And if you want to get forgiven, forgive. Tough stuff. Can that actually be done? Well, it can. And we have really a story from our Old Testament lesson today as an example. One of the people in the Bible who seems to have had every reason to hold a grudge is Joseph. Now, Joseph's story is a long one. It, it, it spans a dozen chapters in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. His father, Jacob, had, had multiple children by two wives and two servants. Uh, he ended up uh, with 12 sons who would become ancestors of the 12 tribes of Israel. That seems to be a fact that he really did favor Joseph, his second youngest, over the rest of his brothers. Maybe because he'd been born uh, in his old age, maybe because it was by his favorite wife, Rachel. And that apparent favoritism caused more than a little tension in the family. But what really tipped the scale when, it was when his father gave Joseph uh, especially, you know, kind of a colorful designer robe. And as if that weren't bad enough, Joseph then announces to everyone that he had a dream in which his family, represented by sheaves or bundles of grain, uh, were all bowing down to his bundle. Well, he probably should have kept that dream to himself, but that wasn't in the cards. His brothers conspire against him to the point of plotting to murder him, but then decide instead to fake his death and sell him to some traders who were passing through, traders who they knew would eventually sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, where his master's wife wrongly accuses him of sexual improprieties, which lead to jail time. While he's in jail, he interprets an especially troubling dream that Pharaoh has, telling him it means there will be seven years of abundant crops, followed by seven lean years. He convinces the Pharaoh to begin storing grain away in preparation for the hard times that are coming, telling him that it was God who gave him the power to interpret dreams. And before you know it, Joseph goes from slave and prisoner to Egypt's prime minister, second only to Pharaoh. The lean years do come, and they affect the region even beyond Egypt's borders, all the way to Canaan, where Joseph's own family is struggling to survive. Joseph's father sends his brothers to Egypt to see if there's any way they can buy grain. And who do you suppose they find in charge of that when they get there? Well, Joseph. Now, he recognizes them, but the brothers don't recognize him. And that's where this morning's reading picks up the story. It's the big reveal where Joseph tells those same brothers who sold him into slavery who he really is. You know, now they're shaking in their sandals. Their little brother holds their lives in his hand. The big surprise is that instead of revenge... Joseph is thrilled for a chance to see his father again. He tells him, don't worry. Not only will he supply them with the grain he needs, but he even invites them to move to Egypt. And they do move. And, and they, they flourish there for generations until they don't. That's all another story involving a man named Moses. 
So why the happy ending in Joseph's story? Had he forgotten what they did to him? Not likely. No, he says, I am Joseph. I'm your brother whom you sold into Egypt. Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. God sent me before you to preserve life, to keep alive not just you, but many people. It wasn't you who sent me here. It was God. He'd seen the big picture. Years later, when their father Jacob dies, the whole clan makes a trip back to Canaan to lay him to rest according to his wishes. Afterwards, they return to their lives in Egypt, but even then, Joseph's brothers really wonder if he still may harbor any will, ill will toward them. You know, it's the sin that just won't let them go, isn't it? Again, they ask for his forgiveness, falling down before him. And Joseph famously answers, Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's a great story with a happy ending, but it doesn't always go that way in our life, does it? We want satisfaction for the scars someone else's misdeeds have left on us. We don't want to let it go. We've been damaged or heartbroken, and somebody should have to pay, right? Someone should. You're right. And someone did. Someone innocent of any wrongdoing. On a rough wooden cross on Good Friday, Jesus shed blood, paid the price for the sins of the whole world. Before during and after the time that he walked this earth. He satisfied God's righteous anger for sin in our place. Now Joseph was able to forgive his brothers because he saw God's hand in his life, God's providence, his ability to see the past, present, and future that we can't see. Looking back over his life, he sees that God had managed in a truly mysterious way to bring good out of evil, using even something as, as, as contemptible as what his brothers did to him to put him into a position second only to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. But what about the scars? Surely there were scars. Well, God didn't remove Joseph's scars. He didn't make him forget what had happened to him. I mean, there must have been times before God's plan was revealed to Joseph that, that he would have liked to use his power to get even with him. But while his brothers may have written him off as dead, God never did. He was with him through all these years, kept him safe. Kept him alive. He kept on making himself known to Joseph, revealing himself, uh, his presence through the miraculous, a little at a time until, until the whole big picture began to emerge. And what first looked like cruel, heartless, and hateful acts on the part of Joseph's brother eventually uh, was revealed for what it really was, a graceful, heartfelt, loving act on the part of God who wanted Joseph to prosper and save his family from famine. God brings healing. Even though you intended to harm me, Joseph tells his brothers, God intended it for good. Now, does that mean every tragedy we experience has a silver lining? That all evil is really good? That, that our suffering somehow has been orchestrated by God? Well, no. The world is filled with senseless violence, horrifying hatred, and a whole range of actions and attitudes that attempt to obstruct the will of God. But our almighty God even has the power to turn our human evil into divine good. He used the slavery of Joseph to save the whole clan and the whole nation. He transformed the death of Jesus into the salvation for the whole world. The question is, how do we tie into that power when tragedy strikes close to home? Well, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
We do not know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And maybe that's just what we need to rally back when it, it seems like our, our whole world just collapsed around us. You know, help from the outside. There are a few things that can help make Paul's promises here your own. First, tapping into the power of the Spirit is, is going to involve your attitude. You hear a lot about mindset these days, don't you? Especially with the COVID thing, often in connection with a person's politics, right? They get, they get set, locked in. Mindset's not a new concept. Uh, in Romans 8, 5, Paul says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what nature desires. But those who live according to the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. Now, tapping into the resource of the Holy Spirit begins with a conscious desire to want what God wants for you. Now, he may not always change your situation, but he can certainly change the way you react to it. It's easy to recognize blatant sins, things like murder, theft, adultery. But what about the unwillingness to forgive? It's a big one on God's list. You know, in our gospel today, Jesus says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Letting go of old hurts and, and the desire to, to uh, uh, hurt back and then giving it all over to God is, is one of the hardest things you'll ever do. But you can because of the spirit you received at your baptism working in you. The forgiving person God wants you to be is the person his spirit is urging you to be. But he's not going to make up your mind for you. He's simply there to guide you in the right direction. He won't force you to change, but he will help you recognize your fallen nature. You know, we're not born filled with the fruits of the Spirit. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, uh, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the gifts of the Spirit, but our sinful natures fight against these gifts. A key ingredient to tapping into the Spirit's power is, is first recognizing if there's even a battle between good and evil going on in our lives. One we don't know how to bring under control. We don't notice it so much sometimes because it's hidden behind a, maybe behind a wall of, of, of pet sins we've constructed, things we, we, uh, we just don't want to let go of. You know, we're fond of thinking, oh, God will surely allow me one little vice. And the older we get, you know, the more vices we tend to collect, don't we? It's easy because we don't judge sin the way God does. We tend to rank them on some kind of imaginary scale. And as a result, we end up being really sorry for having violated numbers 1 through 20. But anything below number 20, that's too petty for God to even, even uh, concern himself with. We hope. The most important way we can tap into the power of the Spirit may actually be the most difficult. It's getting accustomed to relying on him and not yourself. See, God's promise is simple and straightforward. He's given us his Spirit to help us get beyond our troubles. But when someone does you dirt and you react by hardening your heart against them, uh, you're, what you're really doing is preventing God from showing you his part and presence in it all. That's a lesson from Joseph's story. He had so much new stuff to deal with managing Egypt, he couldn't take the time to dwell on revenge if he wanted to. He'd gotten to where he was used to following God's leading. He actually missed his family and especially his father and his youngest brother. Now, you and I, we're a pretty independent bunch. Many of us have worked very hard to achieve, you know, what we have and where we've come and the idea of surrendering control, even to God, just sort of rubs us the wrong way. Now, it goes against our nature. 
giving control over to God seems like too big a step for you, try this. Do it for just a day, right? Say, God, I'm yours on Tuesday. Please help me. You don't have to worry about having all the fancy words or the right pronouns. The Spirit will take care of that. Now, if Tuesday morning rolls around and it's still such an overwhelming thought you can't deal with it, try this. You know, drag for just 30 minutes. God, I'm giving it all to you for the next half hour. After that 30 minutes, try it for another 30 minutes. And then another after that. Accepting God's will and strength for just even 30 minutes at a time will teach you to begin relying on the Spirit's power instead of your own. It really will. And you'll be surprised how much difference that can end up making in your family life or on the job or uh, especially in your relationship with God. Because what it does is it allows God in. See, Joseph looked at the scar of his sale into slavery and saw more than just how much getting that scar had hurt. He looked from there to see that God had really had a saving plan for his life all along. So maybe the trauma or abuse some of you have suffered will be just what it takes to help someone who finds him or herself in a situation, similar situation. Maybe a loss you've experienced will put you into a powerful position to assist those who are grieving. By reflecting on our scars, instead of ignoring them or wishing them to disappear completely, we can experience and discover opportunities for Christian service. Of course, the source of any healing is God himself, and our access to the great physician has been made possible by the atoning work of his son, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, it's by his scars that we're healed, isn't it? It's his sacrificial death and his victory over the grave that grants us eternal life in heaven. The only place where there are no types of suffering. Because he lives, healing is possible. And it's not just about us crossing over to God. It's remembering that he's already crossed over to us with his gifts of new life in Christ and eternity in paradise. With his gifts of healing and reconciliation. Now why not let him love you? Put your pride aside. Try it his way. No, it may just take the ache out of heartache. And you'll be blessed. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and